Our Heavenly Father, we come now to open your word and look into it, expecting to hear from you. Lord, may our hearts be open to what you have to say to us in this prophecy that we'll be reading tonight. I pray that the words of Isaiah will be clearly relevant to our lives and that we will have the wisdom, the courage, and the strength to apply these truths to ourselves. I ask this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, who knows where this line comes from? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. If you don't know, then you need to read more classic literature. That is one of the most famous lines in literature. It is from the book uh, by Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And A Tale of Two Cities is a book that is set in the days of the French Revolution. And at least part of the meaning of that first line is that the revolution was, uh, on, on the one hand, uh, a great victory for the poor and the oppressed over the, the powerful who had been oppressing them for centuries. And so it was the best of times. However, as the book uh, describes in detail, in the aftermath of the revolution, the victorious revolutionaries guillotined many, many people that they believed had been part of the tyrannical ruling class. And many were executed simply because they were part of aristocratic families and not because of any crimes that they themselves had committed. And so these horrible, unjust killings made it the worst of times. Now, we can't press the comparison too far, but our passage from Isaiah today, we also find to be a tale of two cities. And it is a tale of the best of times, and it is also the worst of times for others. And the story begins with another famous line that we've seen repeated over and over again in Isaiah. So if you're looking at chapter 26 here, you see that the first three words are, in that day. In that day. Um, what, are we ta what day exactly is Isaiah talking about here? It is the day of salvation. The day when God comes to the rescue of his people. But when will that happen? Or has it already happened? Or what, when is that day? Well, I used an illustration a couple of weeks ago that bears repeating now. And here it is. When we look up into the mountains, and especially when we're going hiking in the mountains, uh, from a distance, it can be very hard to judge the uh, relative proximity of different mountains uh, and how the various peaks and ridges relate to each other geographically. The depth is really hard to see, and there's an illusion that sometimes makes it look like you're seeing one continuous ridgeline of mountains when in reality, there might be a big valley uh, between one peak and the next. And this is similar to what often happens with biblical prophecy. The prophet writes as if that day is one event coming up on the near horizon. But in reality, he is combining elements from two or more events that might actually be far distant from one another in time. 
And so we have prophecies that have multiple fulfillments. Um, a clear example of this is from Isaiah chapter 7, which was a passage we didn't really deal with much in our uh, sermon series here, but it illustrates this idea very clearly because it has the famous verse in it that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We've all heard that verse over and over again at Christmas time, right? But if you read Isaiah chapter 7 it is pretty clear that he is referring to a child who would be born in the next few years from the time that Isaiah said it, and whose birth would signal that God would rescue the nation of Judah from uh, an alliance between the northern nation of Israel and the Arameans who had formed an alliance to come and attack Judah. And so this whole sign of the, the birth of this child was a sign that God would rescue his people from this uh, Israelite Aramean uh, army. Um, but it is also clear that this child and the salvation from the Aramean Israelite invasion did not completely fulfill the prophecy. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, it says this about the birth of Jesus it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So the birth of Jesus was also the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 7. In fact, Jesus' birth was really the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. The salvation from the Arameans was a small and temporary salvation. In fact, another invading army came and conquered Judah not too far in the future. But the salvation that Jesus brought was a real and permanent salvation from eternal condemnation. But when we read the prophecy in Isaiah without the benefit of looking at the rest of Scripture and the history of God's salvation, it is hard to see the full picture of what is being predicted. It looks like a simple prediction of a single event that did take place long ago. But it is actually a complex prediction of what was partially fulfilled in Isaiah's own lifetime and was ultimately fulfilled uh, centuries later by the birth of Jesus. And something like this is what is happening in all these references to that day throughout the book of Isaiah and actually throughout a lot of places in the scriptures, not only in Isaiah. Um, that day is the day in which God comes to rescue his people and brings about their salvation. And there are at least three major fulfillments of that day as Isaiah is referring to it here. Two that have already happened and one that is still in the future. The first day happened long, long ago. It was the defeat of the Babylonians by the Persians and the return of the Jewish exiles to Jerusalem. Of course, that didn't happen in a single day. When it talks about that day, it doesn't mean one 24-hour period, but that time, this, this day, this time period. And, um, and of course, it was over a period of several years that the, the Jews were um, uh, renewed as the people of God, and the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt, and worship of God in Jerusalem was restored, and... Uh, 
And it signaled the end of the exile, which had been a punishment from God for the sins of his people. And that was a major moment of salvation. It was that day, the day when God restored his people. The second major fulfillment of that day was the coming of Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. In that great day, Jesus defeated sin and death and earned our forgiveness and our eternal salvation. And many predictions from uh, the prophets referring to that day were fulfilled by Jesus in his coming and his death and resurrection. But the ultimate fulfillment of that day is still yet to come. Uh, it will be the final return of Jesus when he will come back to judge the world and to bring about complete and total justice and peace and to set up his eternal kingdom and punish all wickedness and reward all righteousness. And so, which of the three major that days are in the mind of Isaiah in chapter 26? Well, all three are, are there. But the main one that seems to be in view in this chapter is the final day of the Lord when all things are set right. In, it is in that day that it will be a tale of two cities, the best of times and the worst of times. So that's my explanation of the first three words of the chapter. So we'll move a little quicker through the rest of it here. So otherwise, it'll take us a little too long to get through it. But uh, anyway, here we go. Next uh, section, it says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So this chapter is a song. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when uh, he was preaching on uh, chapter 12, Pastor Mike, that section is also a song, and he actually sang for us all the, uh, the song of Isaiah chapter 12. And, uh, and so, here we go. Uh, no, I'm not going to sing, because believe it or not, I'm actually a worse singer than Pastor Mike, and so I'm going to spare you all from that. But um, <laughs> I'll just read the, the chapter here. So here it is, uh, the second part of uh, verse 1 of chapter 26. It says, we have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. So here we have the first of our two cities. It is the city of God, the city of righteousness. And it's clearly a metaphorical, symbolic city. I mean, the, the, the walls of the city are made out of salvation. So not, not bricks or stones, but made of salvation. So this is a, a, a symbolic and metaphorical city. And, uh, and, and, but, but yet, even though these walls are metaphorical, they are said to make it a strong city. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God has given us salvation and we are safe within it. It means what the Bible says in Romans 8. Here's, here's Romans 8. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the he who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a strong city. God has made salvation its walls and ramparts, and when we put our trust in Jesus, our eternal destiny is secure. No attack can succeed against the people of God. And then it says, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. Um, who's, what nation is this righteous nation that he's talking about? Is it the nation of Judah, the people of God there in Jerusalem and Judah? Certainly not the Judah of Isaiah's day. In chapter 1, he described the nation of Judah as the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. The righteous nation is not a nation that is defined by a national ethnic identity. It is the nation made up of the righteous people that keep the faith. And Isaiah is one of the Old Testament books that makes it most clear that this future people of God, this city of God, is made up of people from many ethnic and political nations around the world. And the gates of that city will be open not to people who have the right ethnic heritage, but to people who are faithful and righteous. And the life of that nation is described in the next verses, which are uh, our scripture memory verse for this month that we were meditating on just a few minutes ago. Here it is. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Notice that the first half of that uh, section is addressed to God, and it's a description and a praise to God for what he will do for those who trust in him. And the second half is addressed to the reader and is to encourage us to trust in God. It says, perfect peace Perfect peace. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And how is this per, per, uh, the perfect peace achieved? Is it through our effort to muster up enough faith to never have any doubts or ever have any questions? Is it for our effort to always trust God and to never make a poor decision and to do th and never decide to do things our way instead of God's way? No, it is not out of our effort. God is the subject of the sentence here. It is God who provides perfect peace for his people, for those who trust in him. Now, we're going to come back to some questions about this in this idea of perfect peace in a moment. But for now, I just want you to see that this is something that God does for us, not something that 
we do ourselves. And then that second half of the verse encourages us to trust in the Lord forever. That means more than just we shouldn't stop trusting in God at some point, right? So when we say forever, we don't just mean uh, keep trusting in him and don't give up. We also mean at every moment along the way. It's an eternal trust that spans the whole time with no gaps. There are no moments in our lives when circumstances make it inappropriate uh, to, pa to, to pause our trust in God. We should never stop trusting in him. Trust the Lord forever. Why? Because of the character of God. Because the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. He is steady, solid, unwavering, and trustworthy. God is the rock all of the time and forever. You will never find anything or anyone that is more worthy of trust, and certainly not yourself. And this is the situation for the city of God in that day. Strong walls, perfect peace, open gates. It is the best of times. But in verses 5 and 6, we have the story of the other city, the arrogant city of the world. Verse 5, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. No one who sets himself up to oppose God will succeed. No one who thinks that he will be just fine without God will survive. No one who opposes the people of God will escape from God's judgment. They will all be humbled by God and laid low. The very people who they once oppressed will trample down their city. And again, just like the other city, this is not a literal city. Um, this city is also a metaphorical and symbolic city. It is the lofty high city, the city of the proud. It is all those who refuse to trust in God and trust rather in themselves. Now, some of those who dwell in this city are obvious. They shake their fists at God and loudly declare their opposition to him and their ambition to rule over their own lives. Some are much more subtle. Their rebellion against God comes in the course of a nice, quiet life. Some residents of this city would even claim to follow God. They might even fool themselves into thinking that they're following God. But they are not submitting to God. They are not trusting in Him and keeping faith. They follow God's ways when it's convenient for them. And when God's ways conflict with their own desires... They rebel. Which group do you think is more numerous? Those who shake their fists and openly curse God? Or those who are nice people 
but refuse to trust him and submit their will to his. I don't know the answer to that question for certain, but my own observation of people makes me think that the blatant rebels are the exception. Most just ignore God, whether or not they claim to believe he exists. For the people of the city of the world, that day will be the worst of times. They will come under the judgment of God and will suffer the consequences of their rebellion. Isaiah then moves back to a further description of the life of the people of the city of God. In verse 7, he says, The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Life is good for the people of God. Their path is level and smooth, and they have perfect peace. This is a gift from God. He makes their lives peaceful and smooth. Well, that sounds great, but what does that really mean? Is the Bible saying that the Christian life is perfectly peaceful, level and smooth, free from trouble and trials? If that was what Isaiah meant here, he would be in conflict with the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible, as well as a whole lot of, uh, of, of our own experiences, which all teach us that life is full of trials and troubles for the Christian as well as for others. If anything, the Bible teaches us to expect more trials in our lives if we are following God. In John chapter 16, Jesus uh, said this. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Again, like Isaiah, a promise of peace. Um, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, uh, Jesus here helps us understand what it is that Isaiah is talking about. Jesus is offering peace. He is giving his disciples peace, but he does not mean by that that they will not have troubles. The very next line is, in this world you will have troubles. But you can still have peace because he has overcome the world. This is the same thought that we have here in Isaiah. Perfect peace, smooth and level paths for the people of God. But our understanding of what it means to have that kind of life is not that we will have no struggles. It means that even when life is crazy and challenging and circumstances are against you and it just doesn't make sense, God will give you peace in the midst of it all when you keep your mind steadfast upon him. And what is the source of that peace? Jesus has overcome the world. Or in the Isaiah passage, we have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. This has not yet been fully 
realized. This is one of those things where, where there's a multiple fulfillments of it. And it's been partly fulfilled, yes, but we can see the full fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment of it coming. And in that day, we will celebrate the final fulfillment of the peace of God. And in the meantime, the knowledge of that victory can help us to take heart, as Jesus says. The next verses from Isaiah describe the mindset of the righteous people of God. Verse 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. What is the great desire of the people of God? Not their own comfort, not their own success, not their own fame and renown. The righteous desire God and his glory. As we walk in the way of God's laws, trusting in his instructions that are, and trusting that, that his instructions are coming from his desire to, to give us a great and full life, as we trust that, the desire of our hearts is to see God praised and his name renowned. We want everyone to look at the goodness of God to us and the salvation that he has given us and say, God is great. Day and night, we long for more of God. We want to know God. We want to experience him. We want to have a real relationship with him. But here's the thing. This is not exactly a description of my own constant state of mind. And I'm pretty sure most of you don't feel this way all the time either. The desire of my heart is often my own greed, my own comfort, my own success. On an intellectual level, I know that God is better and my heart should seek after him. But I'm not always there. Does that mean that there's something wrong with me? Does it mean that I'm not part of the righteous nation, the city of God? Don't lose heart. Yeah, in a sense, there's something wrong with all of us, but it's okay. God has us. God has us. And God is not done with me yet, and he's not done with you yet either. The description here is what we aspire to as the people of God, to constantly be longing for more of God and more of his grace. And it is where we will be someday. In the meantime, we should be growing more and more towards this. Now, are you familiar with the law of diminishing returns? Um, it's the principle that states that as you enjoy good things that bring you joy, soon you get used to those good things and they don't bring you as much joy as they did at first. So you need uh, to get larger amounts of those things in order to get that same joy that you had in the beginning. I'll illustrate this from uh, the sport of downhill skiing. When you first learn how to ski and you finally get the hang of it, um, it's a thrill just to make a few good turns and, uh, and make it down to the bottom of chair three without falling. 
But later, that begins to be kind of, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I made that. That didn't give me much of a thrill. It's not very exciting uh, once you've kind of got the hang of things. Uh, you need to go to the top of the mountain, and you need to ride bigger, steeper slopes in order to get the same uh, level of joy and satisfaction from your sport. And then, you know, that starts to get normal, and so then you need to start skiing some black diamond slopes. And then you need to start catching air off some jumps. And after a while, you need to, to get the same thrill. You need to be pounding down the moguls, doing backflips off the jumps. And it's still fun, but you need to do more and more extreme things in order to get the same thrill and the same excitement that you had at the beginning. It's the law of diminishing returns. With God, the law of diminishing returns does not apply. The more you experience of God, the more you will want him. The more time we spend thinking of God, praying, reading our Bibles, talking to people about God, the more we will find that our souls will yearn for him day and night. On the other hand, if we neglect God and we don't spend time in prayer and in his word, we will soon find that our longing for him fades. So if you aspire for your life to fit that description from Isaiah, your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. If you want that to be a description of your heart, then decide that you want this and start acting like you want it. Even at those times when your, your real desire is for your own comfort and you just want to be entertained, pursue God. And the more you do, the more you will find that you enjoy your time with God and this description will become more and more true in your life. And of course, when the final that day comes... Our sanctification will be complete and our own sinful, selfish desires will really be gone. Uh, as it describes here, our hearts will find their ultimate joy in God. Now, I want to I sum up and finish today by skipping down a couple of verses to verse 12 and just bringing out a couple of implications from, from this last verse that relates to what we've been saying. Here it is, uh, Isaiah 26, verse 12. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. This theme is consistent throughout the Bible. Our salvation, our membership as a part of the people of God, the spiritual blessings in our lives are all gifts from God. All that we have accomplished, God has done for us. There's two big applications to this idea. First, it should keep us humble. We, uh, why are we a part of the city of God, enjoying the best of times while others are part of the city of the world and and uh, destined for the worst of times? It is because God has done this for us. 
It is not because we are better than anyone else and we deserve it. It is the grace and mercy of God. We do not deserve this grace any more than anyone else. God has accomplished this for us. He has given us peace. And so we should be humble. The second big application is that we should be thankful to God. We must acknowledge God's gifts and live in gratitude to him. God has given us a strong city whose walls are salvation. He has been and will be our eternal rock. Let us rejoice and give him thanks. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would help us to always be grateful, always be thankful for your gifts. Lord, give us right desires. Help us to want you. Help us to seek after you. Give us that drive to be your people. Give us that day and night longing for more of you. We ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.